Observability allows engineers to understand what is going on inside their systems. In its most raw form, observability comes from log data. Modern systems have many layers of logs. Virtualized cloud infrastructure, container orchestration, the container runtime itself, and the application logic that is running within that container. With all of these layers, it's not practical for a developer to have to sift through layers of logs every time a bug occurs in production, or a deployment fails integration tests. Higher-level observability tools include charts, distributed tracing tools, and monitoring services. With proper observability, developers can save time during incident response. Day-to-day -day software development becomes safer and more comfortable. Stripe is a payments company for developers. This episode is the first in a series of episodes profiling different aspects of the company. Our guest today, Corey Watson, leads the observability team at Stripe, and in subsequent episodes, we will explore infrastructure and machine learning at Stripe. Throughout these episodes, you will get a sense for how Stripe's engineering culture works. We hope to do more experimental series like these in the future. Please give us your feedback for what you think of this format by sending us email. You can join the Slack group. You can also fill out our listener survey that we recently created. All of these things are available on softwareengineeringdaily.com, and they're tremendously helpful for us if you give us some feedback. So thanks, and I hope you enjoy this episode and this series of episodes about Stripe. Corey Watson leads the observability team at Stripe. Corey, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. When you joined Stripe, there was not much visibility into how the system was working at an engineering level. Describe the state of observability when you joined Stripe. This is this is great because I have a good anecdote prepared for this. Uh, so my first day at Stripe, with which basically like all startups uh, these days, is that you're supposed to ship some code, right? Like it's not you're not really active until you're actively contributing. So therefore, I remember in one of our spin-up meetings, as we call them, where they teach you how to how to be a Stripe. Um, they're like, okay, we're gonna today we're going to add ourselves to the about page at Stripe. Which you go to our about page, it has a cool like animation and everything. And I'm like, hey, this sounds fun. So I start mo modifying some code and then we like, you know, resolve the Git conflicts that we had. And they're like, okay, so to get this on the site, you just type these commands to deploy the site. And I'm like, great. How do I know if it worked? Like, do I just go look at it? Is there like a dashboard that tells me whether or not I just broke Stripe? Because remember, this is my first day. I'm, I'm terrified, right? We process credit card transactions. <laughs> so uh, lo and behold, they're like, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. Like you just chip the site. Like it's not gonna hurt anything. And I'm like, okay, I know I'm the new guy, but like, seriously, where do you go look to see if the site works after you deploy it? And they're like, no, it's fine. Really, you don't, you just ship it and then it's there. And I'm like, cool, I know what I do at Stripe now. Um, and that's kind of the story of, at least that's the story I tell of how. Meaning, I got meaning because like. when you started, there was no observability into what happens after you ship the site you decided you needed to create that state of observability. <laughs> well, yeah, and to be fair, there was. There were a couple of dashboards and things, but what I was most taken by was just that it wasn't a cultural thing. It wasn't, um, it wasn't that if I'm going to do these actions, I'm going to go and verify or, or be confident that the changes that I made are there. Like, it's not enough to just go look at the website because there's so many people that are using so many different parts of what Stripe is 
that we need to be confident that this hasn't had ramifications somewhere else, right? So uh, I think the difference in where we were then versus where we are now is that we are much more thoroughly instrumented to the point that you can expect to be told uh, proactively, hopefully, that something has gone awry. That word proactive, that has come up in a number of previous shows I've done about monitoring, uh, particularly there was an episode I did with James Turnbull who wrote a book called The Art of Monitoring, and he uh, differentiated starkly in that book between the reactive monitoring and the proactive monitoring. You described the early observability at Stripe when you joined as being reactive. Can you explain what that means? Uh, Well, first off, shout out to James Turnbull for his great body of work that has inspired people uh, like me to, to work on this for a living. Um, but the for us, the the reactive stuff, I think, was largely this idea that, look, something failed, um, you know, widgets were having problems. And so we've created something that looks for that case to occur again where widgets weren't working. But the unfortunate part of what we do, and this is probably true for all industries, but this is the only one I know a lot about. You can't enumerate all possible failure modes. It's just not possible. And so instead of monitoring these individual failure cases, like we're garbage collecting too much or there are too many of this type of failure, instead we have to elevate our thinking to be, well, what are the actual signs of health? What is the work that our service is doing? And is that work being done successfully and within the bounds of what we expect our customers to want? And so instead of this idea that we were focusing on things that had happened before, we have to focus on these high-level health indicators and use those as guides. Uh, it also has the added benefit of sometimes decreasing the amount of stuff that you're inundated with because you're instead of getting 15 different error cases alerting you, you're only seeing that at a high level your overall health is poor or your response level is poor, or response timing, I guess. You've alluded to this already. You suggest that creating this culture around observability is more important than selecting what tools you use or the particular instrumentation. Explain why that is. So I think that it's easy to be distracted by the technology that we work on every day. Like at the sort of bottom of an observability stack, you typically think about time series databases or event uh, analytics or you know whatever your poison is for sort of doing this work. But at the end of the day, none of this stuff matters if we're not empowering and improving the engineering confidence and experience. And so to me, this is it's way more important to talk about what value we're creating, like how what are the things that we're trying to make better for our engineers or our, our, our users? If at the end of the day, it's about, you know, decreasing the number of times we've woken up our engineers or improving the response time for our customer, that's the thing we need to be focused on and not the specific technology that we're using. And so if culturally we are measuring these key indicators and focusing on them, we're less bothered by like, you know, which specific technology, is this the right time series database? Like to me, it's less about the tools and more about what those tools enable. Uh, Now the tools are important too. I mean, they're fun. It's fun to talk about the technical side of it and I get just as bad as everyone else. But to me at the end of the day, this is about the value we're bringing to the organization. And when you were trying to create this environment of observability, you went around to different areas of the company and you asked people what they needed in terms of observability. What were the answers that you got around the organization? They were interestingly varied, 
but also I think had a largely common thread. I think that when we ask people these questions, they're most often going to present them in the context that they're used to. If you work on our, say, financial ops team, then you're going to talk specifically about some more money-oriented problems. Um, but underneath them, there are some patterns. Um, there are very, well, I'm not going to say very few, but there are a reasonably sized number of patterns in monitoring that we can sort of apply to these things. And so then it's about figuring out how to observe them and then how to help them get monitored. So I think the, the majority of things were that they wanted to know what was, if anything, was out of sorts, but they also didn't want to be inundated all the time. They wanted to increase the signal and decrease the noise. And that signal to noise ratio was probably at the root of it, the most common thing we were asked for, because the lack of signal is also bad. Mm. So increasing that signal and decreasing that noise is probably the most concise summary of what we were told when we asked questions. And as the culture of observability was being developed, how did you get the word out to everyone about the way that observability standards or best practices were evolving? Because Stripe is so decentralized, uh, you would think that'd be maybe somewhat difficult, but it's because you know, it's something you want unification on. Like in general, you obviously want a decentralized engineering force, but there are certain things that you want to unify on. I'm assuming that certain observability practices are one of those things. Yeah, uh, it's a very astute observation because I think that, no pun intended with observation and observability, <laughs> but I, I think that if you sort of like let everyone to their own devices here, you're going to end up with a lot of things that are difficult to compare. And measuring and comparing is kind of what we're all about here. So there were a handful of tactics. I think that one of the ways that this was easier to approach uh, is to, to look at it sort of humbly and realize that this is one of those problems that we didn't have a lot of like internal vying for taking it. Like revamping the observability stack seems, I think it's super interesting, but apparently I'm in a minority because not everyone wants to go and change something like that. Um, I also have done this in the past. I, work on the, I worked on the observability team at Twitter. And so I think that some of my past experience paved that road. Um, I didn't like come in and do magic. I think that my reputation helped a little. Uh, but I think the biggest things that we were able to do to get this spread were two. We, we had to not be afraid to advertise as a team. Like we had to be willing to send emails and speak in front of engineering and invite ourselves to things and sort of make a little bit of a racket. Like we're trying to improve and make things better. I think it's no different than advertising if you're a standalone company just internally. And then secondly, we relied, I think, very heavily on champions on other teams. So it was a really common thread to find someone on another team who not, you know, not on the observability team, but in some other part of the engineering organization who really believed in this and say, what can we do to, to help you? Like, how can I empower you so that you become a cheerleader or advocate or evangelist for, for what it is that we're trying to do? And that also has a really great side effect of also improving what you're making, right? Because you're getting that feedback from this other person who's not only, uh, you know, making themselves more, you know, hopefully empowered, but also making it so that when you have the next conversation, you've hopefully already got some of this stuff figured out and you've got an even better product than you had before. So it was sort of the culmination, I think, of all of these things were how we really spread it out internally. Because to your point, um, you know, teams were fully capable of going and setting up their own stuff if they wanted to. 
this term observability was not something that was widely used in the developer lexicon until I feel like maybe in the last year or two. Maybe I'm mistaken, but is you can tell me whether I'm mistaken and why that term observability has started to get used so much. Sure, I I don't think you're wrong. I think I I hadn't heard it much either when I when I started at Twitter. The team was called observability, and I just I, I know what that word means, so I assumed that was you know looking at stuff. That was I thought it was a pretty cool name, <laughs> um, but. Over time, I learned um, and and perhaps sort of even backed into the idea that there's actually a much bigger, um, a much bigger thing here. So observability maybe wasn't common in computer engineering terms, but it is an important concept in other types of engineering. So it comes from control theory, which you're probably much more likely to hear about in mechanical or electrical engineering. And it's the idea that how well can we infer from external outputs what the internal state of a system is and so in the past i think you'd more likely hear about monitoring or something but i think monitoring is just kind of one piece of the puzzle we're like watching charts and we're building monitors that tell us that something has gone awry but we're also doing things like reaching out and um you know proactively taking care of things instrumenting things building tools that are not so simple that don't just stop at time series sometimes there's event-based systems or much more complex systems and um, this entire concept that you have to from sort of beginning to the end of the engineering effort invest in instrumentation and how your system works I think sort of culminates in observability I think we needed a bigger word because monitoring was just too small yeah and to put a finer point on that I think it has something to do with the fact that these days our systems have so many layers of cloud infrastructure and virtualization, and there's container orchestration, there's the container itself. What are the challenges that are created around observability when you have so many layers? That. <laughs> You you uh, you obviously know a thing or two about it because that's that's sort of the kind of stuff that keeps me <laughs> up at night. I think I think the thing that is most difficult for me in this area is just how do we continue to provide the user with an actual like pinpoint into where something has gone wrong, right? Like you've got a host, but the host could have many containers, and um, you know you may be running multiple services in all these places, and ah, it's just like this sort of Gordian knot of problems and how do we cut through that and provide them directly with an answer. Um, I, I think in some respects, the the container question makes some parts of this slightly easier, whereas it also makes other parts harder. I think it makes my job harder, which I appreciate because I think that it, what we do is already difficult enough asking people to instrument their code and all this other stuff. Uh, add on top of that that they've got to you know, find ways to decorate their services with ownership information and all this other stuff is, is, a, is a tall order. But I think that when we have a container, like containers are generally much more single purpose. Separation of concerns is much more of an, uh, you know, an idea that's stronger here, right? Like you don't typically run a container with all of your stack in it. You'll run a, you know, one container for each of the things. And so that helps us with origin information. Like it came from this thing. And because these things are easier to throw away, they're often a little easier to adjust to our new standards. So I think there's, it kind of cuts both ways though. The parts that are harder are for me, how do I collect information? How do I aggregate metrics? How do I provide sort of a substrate of, 
you know, a collection infrastructure here that we can use to get all this information to the uh, sort of backing store in a quick and useful way for people. I, I think it makes my job harder, but I think that's the right direction for us to be going because I want this to be as easy as possible for the engineer and, you know, a little tougher for us. Can you talk more about what the layers of infrastructure are at Stripe and what you've standardized on? I mean, I think the root of this is probably talking a little bit about containers, which this is this is not my area. There's another team at Stripe that's much better to ask these questions. But we we are on AWS, um, which has been a bit of a boon for us, I think, because we've been able to be more thoughtful about containers. Um, but we're also a very security conscious company for very obvious reasons, which means we have a lot of, um, you know, when you're talking about AWS and VPC, so virtual private stuff, and then you've also got all these security groups and stuff that we use to isolate things from each other. Uh, we have a set of tools that make that easier for us so that the various networking components are, um, are there to keep things isolated. Um, we do not, in the moment, I don't think we're running any containers in production. Uh, so that I think that kind of answers hmm. part of that question um, because we're not actively doing it. But I think the reason we've been able to is because our tooling was very heavily based on spinning up instances in AWS as part of your workflow. Mm -hmm. So part of what I do as a service owner is I say, okay, I need a box of this shape and then please spin those up for me. We do use um, ASGs, so auto-scaling groups with AWS we use heavily, which give us many of the benefits of quickly spinning up a like number of machines, but we have yet to invest as heavily in container stuff and I think we're just being more thoughtful about it because I can choose relatively small instances to control my cost uh, and the footprint of my service, uh, while not necessarily having to commit to what is still a, a growing and um, nascent, I, I, w I don't know if I'd say nascent, but you know, there, there's still a lot going on in the container space. Do you hear any discussion around like moving to on-prem because maybe, uh, you know, as a somewhat commodity service, I mean, it's not a complete commodity service because it's obviously the user experience is differentiated. Um, but it's you know in 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 things that in services that resemble commodities a lot of times you you see the uh leadership having some discussion around moving to on prem because um the margins in a commodity business are are much more important but i don't know maybe that's beyond your beyond your purview do you have any thoughts on that well i i think you're right i mean in my at the my previous company we we did choose to lease physical hardware um, it was still, you know, hosted in another data center, but it was a similar sort of thing. It was commodity analytics. Mm. And so the, the margins were such that we did think about it that way. I, I think in our case, the agility that we get yeah. is also, you know, much higher. Like the return on investment is there for sure. us. And plus, I think something that's unique about Stripe that I often point out is that uh, in when I worked at past companies, we processed billions and billions and billions of events and they were huge, but each individual event was like sort of lost in the shuffle. It was so small that it wasn't, it didn't represent significant value or anything like that. But every transaction we process here at Stripe is, is, uh, is, is I'm, I'm not sure the word I want to use there, sacred <laughs> or important or huge. Like, no, I mean, no one thinks that their service is processing useless events, but you know, traditionally speaking here, we're talking about some movement of money that we're being asked sure. to do so also we tend to be at the tail end of someone's funnel so we do a smaller number of transactions than say uh you know a twitter or a facebook because they're 
you know, got all this, you know, all my inane tweets, of course, are going through Twitter and they don't <laughs> represent a lot of money individually, only in the aggregate. But for us, every individual one of these transactions is very important. And so we, we, we tend to work at a smaller scale, I think. So um, I, I think that benefits us a little bit because we're just not as big in terms of like raw instance footprint or something like that because we're just a little smaller in terms of transaction volume. But they're very important transactions. So there's sort of a, a give and take there. Where are the blind spots in your current observability purview? This is, I, I feel like you're um, some sort of dream wizard that <laughs> like peeked into the things that keep me up at night here because you've asked some really good ones. And this is probably the second. Um, I think our blind spots are largely, well, there's a few of them. The first is things that don't happen very often. Um, I don't mean cataclysmic things like meteor strikes or locust plagues. I mean like there's this one weird little thing that happens aperiodically. You know, we can't really pin it down. Um, there's a game internally that I've seen played a couple of times called Guess the Cron Job, which is to find something that's got a very seasonal period to it, <laughs> like it happens every day at this time. Um, but uh, it's the things that are rare and that, uh, and some of them are not even like bad. Some of them are things like, how do we internally help our security team like monitor VPN connections? You know, that's a fairly human scale problem. Like there are only so many stripes and they only connect from so many places, but how do we give them a good, how do we give them good visibility and good understanding of what the current scope of connections to the VPN are and stuff like that? That's one that's been particularly tricky. I think another one is like, how do we bridge the gap between our tools? Um, because observability encompasses instrumentation of like runtime performance and errors and kind of all these disparate systems, we expect people to look in, say, Splunk to find certain types of problems or in Datadog to find another type of problem or Sentry to find another problem. And so how do we, as, an, as a team, provide them with fewer blind spots sort of between these environments? Because do I have a good way to see this holistically? Um, because we rely on a couple of different vendors to do each of these things, and that's tricky. Um, and then lastly, I think the systems are just complex, man. Like, we're not making software any easier. And so uh, you asked earlier about layers. Like, we're talking about a lot of interconnected services as we grow and offer more features and more products. And just how do we understand sort of the network that we've created and provide individual teams with understanding of upstream and downstream and you know, some things that maybe they don't even depend on that are defecting, affecting their services somehow, sort of giving people that knowledge of what's going on around them as we continue to silo information because we're specializing and getting bigger. How do we give people that visibility? And I think, I don't know, it's making me sort of shaky just talking about it, man. These are the things that as, a, as an observability team, I feel like we have a lot of opportunity to make Stripe so much better by fixing these problems, but none of them are simple. I imagine there are also observability challenges where Stripe has to interface with banks because it's such an opaque request. And does an external API call to a bank give you the feedback information that you need to have observability around that transaction? It's it's different per... Um, individual integrations aren't my cup of tea. I don't work on that hmm. team, but I do help them a lot. And interestingly, uh, you continue your, your, uh, your sort of like poking and prodding at all the things that are, that are raw for me. This is, this is another one. I think that we integrate with a lot of stuff. And so it's difficult because the level of, uh, 
I, not not sophistication, I don't think, but just the the types of feedback that we get. I think you made to your question. I think that's exactly the root of it. Like, do we get good information back? And in some cases, we've got really great APIs that we're working with, and in some cases, we're working with uh, batch jobs that don't communicate back to us for some period of time. And one of the things that can be very difficult is realizing whether or not that batch job did its thing. Like the absence of information is sometimes the thing that we're the most interested in figuring out. And so, yes, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do for some. Uh, obviously, the ones that we use the most, they probably get the most exercise and therefore provide us the most feedback. But on the flip side, the, the rare ones are sometimes the ones that can be more difficult. So it, it kind of, I think we kind of represent the gamut, right? Like there's some that are good and some that we have less good integrations with. And, and it's a difficult problem that we still talk about pretty regularly. I, I, have a, I have an upcoming meeting actually just to sort of hash on this with um, a particular implementation that we just can't figure out how to monitor well. But this goes back to your question about blind points. I think that there are some very tricky, especially batch-oriented problems that we have trouble figuring hmm. out. What, what about irreproducible errors? I mean, this is kind of another form of observability blind spot where, okay, an error occurs and you don't log enough information on the first occurrence and then you don't know how to reproduce it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, how do you fix these? Um, do, don't, do you have an answer I for don't, me? I'd, I don't I'd love have to hear it. Uh, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a couple of different approaches. For us, we've, it's about layers. Uh, like how many different areas can we sort of capture information? Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's a trade-off in that the more detailed information you have, the bigger and the harder that is to capture. So uh, back to some of your questions about infrastructure here to spend a brief moment on our observability stack. We're, we're very heavily StatsD based. Um, we actually have an open source project called Veneur, V-E-N-E-U-R, that is an open source implementation of dog StatsD, which is a superset of StatsD made by Datadog. Um, and so we have this first layer of metrics that are sort of things that we expected to measure and they happen very frequently and it's like runtime performance stuff and that's where we're going to get most of our signal about the health of a service like it is processing requests they are happening in this amount of time the error rate is is this or that um, but then the next layer of stuff that we've got is also of course exception tracking like hopefully if you have a sufficiently big error you've got some sort of error catching here um, but that's not always the case either. So we have a third layer of logging. So we're fairly, uh, actually Stripe is probably the most layered in terms of multiple observability systems that I've seen. Um, we didn't rely very heavily on logging in my time at Twitter. There was no index, central index logging. And so Stripe has both index logging from every machine, which includes like very specific canonical lines that say, I just did some work. And we also have that high level kind of best effort metric parsing where we're sending stuff like over UDP just as fast as it happens. Um, and so one other thing I'll say about uh, irreproducible errors is many times I have found in our stack that they come from our various uh, service like intersections. So you may have a service that dispatches to say, you know, service A talks to service B. If service B fails in some sort of cataclysmically bad way that it can't log or it can't send an exception or whatever you expected to see, then often we're able to find that from its dependency. So um, for example, most of our API requests pass through a first layer uh, and that layer has 
one set of metrics that we then compare against the metrics from our second layer of API work. And we kind of watch the two of these. Like we actually alert on the health from the dependent service and the service that we depend on has its own set of metrics that we also compare. And we sort of like A and B these, like this one looks okay and this one looks okay, so we're good. But if either of them differ, we have a problem. We actually have one chart on a, on a main dashboard that says, here's how many errors we see in service A and here's how many we see in service B. And if you subtract these and they ever don't equal each other, or if it's ever not zero, you've got a problem. And so uh, I think that's, that doesn't show you what the error was, which I think was your point, but it does at least get you in the neighborhood of knowing where to look, which I think helps. Um, but I'd be super interested in hearing other people's thoughts on how to do these because it's not an easy problem. How does observability affect the deployment process? This is actually something we're speaking about lately um, here. But I think the first thing that it does, if it's working well, is it gives confidence. Um, deploys can always be a little scary. Um, they're certainly not something that you want to go wrong. I mean, everybody's had that sinking feeling when they realize that, oops, that deploy I just did broke. So the first thing that I think we can provide every day is, is visibility into what is happening such that you are confident. Um, the second is not just the health of the service, but something that we teach in our spin-up classes about observability is that you should be thinking about how to measure the thing you deployed ahead of time. So if you and I are working on something and I've got a patch that says I'm going to decrease the amount of time it takes to perform this operation. Well, hopefully when you review my code, you check and say, well, Corey, did you put a metric in there that times this so that we can check it after it's done? So the second is that you get this like actual validation that the work you wanted to do is actually being done. Um, so that's the second one. The third is we're discussing internally now like how much should signals from the from uh, the current health of say the canary process if you're doing canary deploys or uh, the blue or the green side if you're doing blue green deploys how should those impact the tooling like should we stop people from doing a deploy if we notice something um, also I think an anecdote as to why this is so important if we for some reason have dashboard issues that you can't see data like let's say that we're delayed for some reason or if the dashboards are broken for reasons that have nothing to do with Stripe as a service, we actually stop people from deploying. We lock everybody out because if you can't see the effect of what you've deployed, I think that's a really scary place to be. We talked a little bit about this earlier, but can you talk more about the standards that you have for the monitoring capabilities that every service has to comply with and or and how you, like, can, do people just import like a standard package and then they have distributed tracing and you know the monitoring things you need how do you standardize that across the organization we have a few different ones um, I think to understand some of it it's helpful to know that stripe kind of largely works off of uh, the idea of a mono repo so we have one large uh, code base that covers how most of the core API that you as a user would interact with at stripe if you are in that world which most people are you get almost all the tools for free. So you get you know, a, a metrics library that's got convenience methods for measuring the duration of things or for uh, emitting errors because errors need to be emitted at maybe different sample rates than your normal counter. Um, we have exception handling and all that stuff comes for free. Um, distributed tracing is not something we're actively doing right now, but it's something that we're working on and that will also come kind of for free as you just described. 
we as an observability team also maintain, this is outside of that mono repo, we also maintain a lot of different tools for other systems. So we've got infrastructure teams that are maybe not in the mono repo and are perhaps working directly sort of at the low level Linux layer. And so they need a convenient way to emit metrics directly on the machine. Um, we have other uh, language repos. So Stripe's fairly polyglot. We got a lot of Go, a lot of Java, JVM stuff. Java and Scala are both here. Mm. Um, Ruby, uh, a lot of Python in some places. So all of these we maintain client libraries for as an observability team. Some of them are, we'll just do patches to, to open source projects and some are completely separate projects because we felt the need to, uh, to create some new stuff mm. there. Um, so outside of that, um, uh, something else I want to talk about is, is maybe the metric naming um, and then also the conventions around monitoring. Um, so I've got a lot to say about this, I guess. <laughs> uh, metric names, um, we probably, uh, you know, you just mentioned at the beginning of this how we, where sort of observability began in my time uh, here at Stripe. We went from not having an observability team to now being a team of six people. And so some of this, we didn't do a great job of naming conventions at first. We sort of let everybody kind of do what they wanted. Um, I want to give a shout out to the Prometheus developers for creating a really good guide on how to name metrics. We borrowed a lot from that. Um, and so there are certain things that we do, like ask people to put the um, certain conventions in the names. Like if you're going to emit a timer that's in milliseconds, we ask people to make that a part of the metric name. Um, we use a tag based system, not a dot naming scheme like, say, a graphite. So we have a few dots, like maybe foo.bar baz underscore duration underscore ms um, these types of signals are very helpful for engineers because they don't have to guess at what uh, the metric is measuring it's a little more obvious um, getting everyone to sort of follow that convention has is not something that we enforce through any like programmatic or linted methods but it's something we want to add um, we recently as a team probably in the last three months or so have come up with what we think is a fairly strong convention for how metrics should be named. And we are going to like work on linting and getting that stuff into our standard library so that everyone benefits. Um, we found very little pushback from this. People seem to largely be uh, accepting of whatever conventions we think up and probably partially because we asked, like we didn't just tell people they had to do it our way. Um, as for monitoring, uh, sort of conventions, that one's probably the one that we're the least pushy on, and, and I think we need to improve a lot. Um, one of the best things you can do as as a as observability or monitoring or whatever ops group at your company is just get people to write better monitors. Um, some of that we can improve with tooling. I know we're very big fans of not using like scripted tools that automatically generate monitors because that tends to let you like make a bunch. We're more a fan of like hand curating them and building them in the UI so that you can compare them to historical metrics and say, well, look, this would have fired here. So we've got a good, you know, uh, confidence that it will fire in the future. And also things like, you know, don't send them an email to yourself. Like, don't be that person who sets up an alert that, you know, calls you in the middle of the night. Use your team. Uh, be sure to link to runbooks if you use them. If you have specific dashboards that can be helpful, link to those. We have a concept here we call investigation dashboards. We have a certain set of monitors that my team maintains for everyone. So we'll tell everyone at Stripe, if you've got a box that runs out of disk, we will send you a ticket in Jira that's got that. But we also send you a special dashboard that was made just for diagnosing disk full issues. And so we've tried to like push this idea that if you're gonna bother somebody in the middle of the night, even if it's even if it's yourself, like you owe 
three in the morning self is not nearly as fast as three in the afternoon <laughs> self. So the more you can do to sort of like help future self, uh, the better you'll be in your responsiveness. So we're trying very hard to set standards on those and sort of define them for ourselves. Um, as an organization, I don't think it's something that we're doing a great job of and that we need to invest a lot more in. In fact, I think I made a ticket just a few days ago that said we need to sit down and do some linting because the team sort of agreed that this was something we could do that would really sort of raise the water level for everybody. Speaking of ticketing, when a problem occurs at Stripe, a ticket is auto-generated. What are the qualities that every ticket should contain? Uh, so for us, there are a few. We actually have a guide for this that says if you're going to automatically generate a ticket for someone, what information should it have? So it's sort of a softball. But I think it's important because this is information we've won from a lot of experience. Um, the first thing is you should make a ticket that's actionable. Like you should be able to say for any, uh, whether it's a page or a ticket or any stimuli that you apply to someone, is this actionable? Does it tell me what I can do? Um, I like to pick on Java garbage collection a lot, I guess, because I spend a lot of time as a JVM nerd. But like it isn't really actionable to say, hey, guess what, Corey? You're doing a lot of garbage collection. I don't know what to do with that. So the first thing is like this unit of work that I'm giving you needs to have some sort of action. There needs to be instruction as to what I can do. That's generally for us going to be a pointer to a runbook. So we've taken this monitor that we wrote and when it bothers somebody, it's got instructions on what you can do. You know, here's what you can look at, here's some commands that you can run, here's the expected and maybe common problem. Like if we see that uh Veneur our metrics pipeline daemon is like having trouble sending metrics there are some things that we can expect that you should do if it is sufficiently large you got to like lock deploys and you can't let people uh, do deploys so these are all actions that people can take uh, secondly they need some context so can we give them a dashboard that is that has the context to help them understand what's going on was there a deploy recently like that's really good context to have um, you know, are there any other changes to key metrics that are going on here? Like if my success rate is low, is my request rate depressed or increased? Like am I getting more requests or less requests than normal? Um, are any of my dependent services failing, stuff like that? The more information we can give uh, in that context, the, the better the person can respond. Um, lastly, our favorite thing to add is some mechanism for feedback. Is there a way that this person can ping us to say, hey, this was not helpful. Like this was a completely inactionable and unhelpful message. Or, uh, you know, this was really great and it pointed me directly to a problem. So to run back over them, like just giving them some some action that actually needs to be taken, which is, is by the way, a great litmus test for should this thing even exist. If I can't decide what to do with it, maybe it shouldn't page me. Um, secondly, some context so that when you're, you know, a little bleary eyed at three o'clock in the morning and you can't remember where your other shoe is, much less whether or not this big complicated set of services is working, can I give them as much context as possible? And lastly, did they have a way to give us feedback or their own team feedback? Like we don't manage every monitor that runs within Stripe and keeps an eye on things. So um, something we advocate for is put something in there so that you can, as a team, say this was not useful or this was, and then use that in follow-ups when you know hopefully the problem has gone away. How do you use Slack to improve observability? It's a fine line. Um, it is very easy to be too chatty, I think. We have a couple of different techniques. Um, typically, if someone is paged, then the notice that the page occurred is emitted into that team's channel. 
So for example, if uh, today, uh, a common problem for us is when something goes wrong in another place in the company, we'll get a lot of exceptions sent into Sentry, which is an exception monitoring tool. And so we will see a page that says the backlog for events into Sentry has, has gotten high. Um, so that is kind of good in multiple ways. One, it's like a little less interrupting during the day to see a Slack message than it is to get paged. I, I know I love to intercept it before it rings my phone. I don't know who calls people anymore like barbarians, but when the machines call me, it makes me extra angry. And so that helps, but it also provides a lot of context for the people around you. So your teammates that may be asked to help in the event of a problem, they get aware that this is happening. And thirdly, people that are not on your team who would love to know if your services are in a good place, they can just peek right in. They can see that this is going on. Um, another way that we use it is when you have multiple, like a warning and a critical level for, for an error. We will often have the error emit to Slack at the warning level because it's not necessarily to the point that we need to page anybody, but we want to provide some context if you happen to be looking. Um, and then lastly, if it does go into critical, we additionally will, of course, emit it to Slack with the fact that you got uh, paged because usually the indication to Slack contains a chart or something that provides you with some context. Like here's the line showing the last hour of this important metric so that we can ensure that like it just happened or it's been happening for a while or something like that. Um, we also, we're not heavy, heavy chat ops users at Stripe, but most of these tools, when they go to Slack, have some ability for us to influence them. I can resolve or acknowledge a page uh, using the Slack integration with PagerDuty. Uh, with Datadog, I can click directly through to look at the monitor. And then outside of monitoring, we also share a lot of charts in Slack. So it's very common during an incident to use Datadog's snapshot tool to say, you know, here's a problem here that I saw on this one chart. And then someone else will riff off that and say, oh yeah, I was looking in this other chart and I see the same error you're seeing. And so between all of these, we're providing all this context and a historical backlog that we can use in a postmortem or after you know the incident's over if we don't have a formal postmortem to sort of assemble what happened and the order that it happened. Um, we also have some tools around like feature flags. When we enable and disable feature flags, those go into Slack so that we can see them for context. And uh, we have some like special chat commands that if you say the word paper trail, um, it automatically gets picked up and logged so that you can then look back at it later. So it's fairly common here that if I'm going to make a change like puppet a bunch of machines at once uh, so that a change goes out to say paper trail going to do this thing that might break some stuff uh, and that provides context for everyone around you so I think it's mostly about providing context so I, I basically gave you just like seven different ways that we give context is probably the the root cause of all of those we've mostly been talking about observability at a technical level my sense is that observability is also growing in importance at the executive level and that there's a relationship between the lower level engineering metrics are in terms of quality and how good the higher level executive metrics are. Does, does this resonate with your experience? It does. In, in fact, I'd, I'd say probably on two levels. I, I think that on one level, uh, being able to provide to your leadership a good understanding of the key indicators for health or uptime or responsiveness or what have you is critical. Um, I mean, especially, you know, if I'm talking to the head of engineering, I don't want him to have to like dig through these 30 different dashboards to figure something out. Or if I'm talking to the CTO and she needs to see, you know, a very high level understanding of our health, I don't want 
any of these people to have to they got they protect me from a lot of stuff so i'm going to protect them from our complicated dashboards unless they want to dig in um but then there's i mean i think that's the conventional wisdom right like we always think about providing uh you know better and simpler dashboards so that folks that want higher level overviews can get them but i think there's also a strong aspect where observability is important for your user because we have a lot this is something we've been discussing a lot lately within our observability team because as we've talked about this journey of getting it to be a culture thing at stripe we've kind of done okay with engineering i'm certainly not going to say we're done i think it's sort of asymptotic and constantly approaches done um, but never will be but one place where i think we could do much much better is taking the tools that we've created for engineers to see into how their services work and in, and then extend that on to helping our users so, you know, they, they don't need to go and look at, like, say, the same type of dashboard I would look at, but they certainly should be able to answer questions. Like, I mean, how often have you reached out to some company and been like, I'm sort of seeing things are a little slow? Is that, is it just me? Or, you know, how many times have you tweeted and been like, is, uh, is GitHub broken? Like, pull requests are not showing up as quick as I expect them to, right? Like, these are all things that we can help people answer these questions. And then we can also empower our support staff our user operations staff, our account managers, with a lot more information about how things are performing from the perspective of our customer. And I mean, if you want to go even further, external monitoring so that we see what the real user experience is, these are all still part of observability because this is about figuring out what the internal state, like is this service working? Is it is it doing the thing that I expect, but from its external outputs? And so to me, providing user visibility into something that we have typically seen as an engineering problem is very much about what we're talking here. Like that's, I think that's the next level of what we do and where observability becomes even bigger than just talking about, you know, am I garbage collecting too much or, um, you know, do I have too many file handles open? So to me, these are, it's a double answer. Like I need to help the CTO and CIO or whomever, but I also need to help average end user because at the end of the day, that's what we're here for. So I mentioned earlier that providing value to Stripe's engineers was what it was all about. It wasn't about the tools. But in addition to that, I think providing value to our user is sort of the next level for us. How can we make the customer experience even better through the engineering work that we're doing for observability? I don't think that you're an expert in machine learning, but do you see any opportunities for machine learning to improve observability? <laughs> So I, I've had a long um, experience with this sort of over time. Like I remember at Twitter, we often would have folks from our machine learning staff bring over uh, ways and ideas of like predicting when things were going to go awry. Um, it's, it's tricky for two reasons. This is something that's near to me because we're, we're actively working on some internal tools that help us with machine learning uh, to sort of investigate this. Um, I think on the one hand, there is a huge upside for not having to define static thresholds. You miss so much by saying if the error rate goes above this or if the latency goes above this or if the number of requests go below that because you constantly get on this treadmill of adjusting and having to make multiple alerts for different slight deviations of the rule, which I think is kind of just a bad place to be. Machine learning provides us with the ability to sort of detect an anomaly or an outlier which are both really, really powerful, but they're also a little tricky. So, so many different times here we've seen, uh, you know, like a, a 
a monitor that fires and no one can really figure out why. Like, why did this trigger? Like, what was going on here? And machine learning makes that considerably harder because the results are often sort of opaque. Um, so I think there's a huge potential upside to this, but also it requires vendors or, you know, us as engineers when we're implementing this internally to be really transparent about how we got here. So capturing the state of the machine, if you will, like and showing in, in friendly ways why we saw this, uh, I think is really important. But there's huge upside because it takes so much of the mundane work out and gives you so many opportunities to not miss things. Um, we are more and more often recommending people use anomaly detection monitors in place of sort of static ones, uh, partially because they're easier, but partially because the problems that we at Stripe as we get more mature in this monitoring of our internal systems, we're also sort of like running out of easy problems, which I kind of liked the easy ones because they made me look good. The harder ones are, are trickier, but uh, hopefully we continue to do a good job with them. So uh, I definitely am excited about it. Uh, we're just, I think we're going kind of slow and thoughtful about it because I am scared of creating instances where something fires and we don't know why, and I don't have good answers for the people on the other end. What did you learn about observability in your past lives at Twitter and Keen? Keen is an analytics company, for those who don't know, a metrics and analytics company. Sometimes I feel like I work on code so that I can visualize it. Um, I think for me specifically, this is I'm very passionate about this because we make very complicated stuff, and the way that I deal with that is by making visual representations. I guess I'm just a visual learner. Um, when I joined Twitter, I think I was initially enamored by the fact that the company, I didn't join Twitter's observability team from Jump. I joined as an SRE working on message queues. And I, I was so quickly just infatuated with the idea of what they were doing because it appealed to that visual nature of mine. Um, but what I learned from that was, I mean, sort of, I came into that team as a user instead of as, an implementer. And I think that was a real big upside. I think the biggest thing I have learned is always, this goes back to your tools question, always remembering that it's not about the tools. It's about the value that we're providing to our user, be that an engineer or the user that benefits from the uptime that we've enabled um, or the reliability that we've enabled. And so partially it's like learning that people, people aren't bad, right? Like you know, we, we, they don't mean to set up a service that breaks or they don't mean to not instrument a thing. The more easily these people can do this, the more powerful they'll become. Like making monitoring and observability tools as easy as possible is something that I've learned. Um, learning that like no one wants to be woken up in the middle of the night is a big one. So proactively engaging that. Um, also just proactively engaging dissent. I think that being sort of... Uh, I'm not sure the word I want to use here, but like being flippant, I guess, about monitoring problems and all these other things that manifest themselves. Like I want to nip that in the bud. I don't ever want people to be to talk like, ah, oh, well, you know, we get paged all the time. So so-and-so like I really am aggressive about reaching out to people and asking those questions. Like, how can I cut this off? Because I think that one of the biggest contributors to burnout in our industry is just not being proactive enough about people who are getting paged too much or whose services are failing. Um, you know, these are all things that we have a direct capability to improve. Um, I know that when I was at Keen in these early startup phases, like I let myself get burned out on those and I could have done even more uh, for myself and for everyone around me by investing in these tools more. 
And then here at Stripe, I think what I've learned is people want this. And the more we can invest in it and the more we can help them, the better. I, I One of the questions I'm commonly asked when I've spoken at conferences and stuff is like, how did you make it possible for there to be an observability team at Stripe? Um, you know, how did you get approval? And And I didn't. I just sort of like sat here and busted my ass to make it happen um, and just worked on it constantly in between every other project I was doing I was always selling this idea that if we invest in this we can get so much more out of it and so I think to, to roll it all back here like Twitter really weaponized my love of, of observability as something that could empower and make people better uh, at Keen I think I saw it firsthand in myself because I wasn't focused on observability there I was focused on general engineering and I got to use my tools a little more, <laughs> which is always, you know, dog fooding is very enlightening. And then lastly, here at Stripe, I like sort of stepped out and, you know, and took this risk to say, we're going to make this part of the culture and we're going to build a team around it. And I basically just, I don't want to say whined about it because you're not whining if you're also doing the work. I was investing in the work and basically incessantly saying that we needed to have this and look at the value that we're getting from this investment. And uh, over time, we, we've shown it by focusing on the value that we're providing. Uh, and so I think, uh, I don't know, those are the high-level things I picked up, I think. If there's an engineer listening to this and they're seeing that you create an entire team around a role that, like, I don't, I don't think I've interviewed anybody that's an observability engineer, but you create an entire team that is observability. If there's somebody listening to this and they want to create just a culture of observability, not not as ambitious as a specific role or a specific team, but maybe they work at a place uh, where they think observability would be useful. If if they work at a place that is not as open to change as Stripe and is not as open to, you know, somebody that comes in and says, even even if they are busting their ass and doing the work, they're not open to the idea of observability teams. What what are the steps you recommend that engineer take to at least just get a culture of observability in the direction that you have implemented at Stripe? I think that this is sort of the root of many of the people that ask, because I, I don't, you know, some companies are not going to do this, and that's okay. Um, for us, I think part of it is, I'm not answering the question so much as setting it up, uh, but I think that for us, our uh, choice to invest in vendors for many of our solutions, like we we build a handful of the things we work on, but we also leverage outside vendors. Like we are not a time series database company. So um, until we acquire that sort of stuff internally or have a need, we rely on others. So I think the first thing that you can do is leverage existing tooling. Um, as engineers, we so often want to like go and build the cool thing ourselves. There's a reason people are still using Nagios. Um, there's a reason people are still using Graphite. Graphite's a great tool. Nagios is a great tool. There's nothing wrong with them. Um, but there's a reason they're still around and have been so popular for so long. Um, do not try to reinvent the wheel. Just go out and pick the best tools you can find that give you the most bang for the minimum amount of investment. That's that's like step one. Um, if I had gone out and said, like, I'm going to build a time series database, I think people probably would have told me to shut up and go back to whatever other things that I was doing. Um, but then secondly, I think earlier I mentioned like finding champions, um, the finding other people who are also willing to invest is important. If you're not finding other people who can invest, maybe you're barking up the wrong tree. 
Um, or maybe your pitch is bad. Uh, what is it they need? So you, you asked me earlier about what I learned from asking people. You know, I learned that maybe the thing I thought was valuable wasn't the way they looked at it. Maybe they didn't, you know, need a time series database. They needed some sort of, uh, you know, scheduled check mechanism like what Nagios or Sensu provide. Um, or maybe they needed tracing more than they needed metrics. So uh, being incredible, being very receptive and talkative about it um, is another one. The, the third way is to involve yourself in places where you can add value. Um, we, one thing that I do every week is attend our uh, incident review meetings. This was something that when we first started happening or first started doing them, we didn't have an observability team formally, but I sat myself in that room every Friday and I listened to every incident we had uh, and I thought, how can I make this maybe not not happen again? Because we all know that, you know, the, the nature of these things is that they're going to happen. But how could I have helped to mitigate this? What could my team have done? What could our stack have done that would have made this not a problem or not as much of a problem in the future? And figuring out what metrics around incidents we cared about. Like, were we trying to uh, increase uptime, reduce incidents, decrease the mean time to detection? Uh, something like that like where were we in that mix and how could we provide that because that's the thing people care about so find the thing people cared about for us at the time it was incidents but you know for you it may be something else for you maybe it's uh, you know customers maybe you need to know my users are having a good or bad experience and providing that value uh, maybe it's the layers that you pointed out earlier maybe you need to provide distributed tracing to your teams so that they can get better insight into how all this stuff is flowing uh, or maybe Maybe it's cost. Um, you know, we talk about metrics, lar or sorry, uh, observability largely from the perspective of metrics. But maybe what you need to be looking at is is spend. Could you be providing value in like looking at your AWS bills and sort of tying those back to users? I mean, that, that's a form of observability just for a different system than the runtime systems we're often speaking about. So, I mean, I hate to beat the drum, but I think it all comes back down to, again, like value is the big thing I think we have to be interested in here. What value does the observability thing you want to do provide? And are you doing everything that you can to maximize it? Corey, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. This has been a great conversation. I love talking about this stuff, and the questions are really good because I think that no one pops out of this knowing how to solve these problems. I think that's the biggest message back to your question of how for to sure. do it. I think being willing to say this is a journey and we're not super good at stuff, Like I think this is a great platform to be able to do that and to uh, you know provide some, some motivation to other folks doing the exact same thing. So thank you for having me.